Chapter Five of The Jewels of Aptor by Samuel R. Delaney. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter Five. Light lowered in the sky as they walked beside the river, keeping close to the rocky edge and brushing away vines that strung into the water from hanging limbs. Urson broke down a branch as thick as his wrist and as tall as himself and smote the water with it playfully. That should put a welt on anyone's head who wants to bother us. He raised the stick from the water, and drops ran along the bark, moving sparks at the ends of dark lines. We'll have to turn into the woods for food soon, said Yemi, unless we wait for animals who come down to drink. Urson tugged at another branch, and it twisted loose from fibrous white pulp. Here, he handed it to Yemi. I'll have one for you in a moment, Geo. And maybe we could explore a little before it gets dark, Geo suggested. Urson handed him the third staff. There's not much here I want to see, he muttered. Well, we can't sleep on the bank. We've got to find a place hidden in the trees. Can you see what that is through there? Yemi asked. Where? asked Geo. Huh? Through the thick growth was a rising shadow. A rock or a cliff? he suggested. Maybe, mused Urson, but it's awfully regular. Geo started off into the underbrush, and the others followed. Their goal was further and larger than it had looked from the river. Once they passed across a section of ten or twelve stones, rectangular and side by side, like paving. Small trees had pushed up between some of them, but for thirty feet, before the edge sank beneath the soft jungle floor, it was easier going. Suddenly the growth became thin again, and they were at the edge of a relatively clear area. Before them loomed the ruins of a great building. Six girders cleared the highest wall, implying an original height of eighteen or twenty stories. One wall was completely sheared away, and fragments of it chunked the ground. The revealed dark caves of broken rooms and cubicles suggested an injured granite hive. They approached slowly. To one side, a great metal cylinder lay askew, a heap of rubbish, a flat blade of metal transversed it, one side twisting into the ground where skeletal girders shone beneath ripped plating. A row of windows like dark eyes lined the body, and a door gaped in an idiotic oval halfway along its length. Fascinated, they turned toward the injured wreck. As they neared, a sound came from inside the door. They stopped, and their staves leapt a protective inch from the ground. In the shadow of the door, ten feet from the ground, another shadow moved, resolving itself into an animal head, long, muzzled, gray. Then they could see the forelegs. It looked like an immense dog, and it was carrying a smaller animal, obviously dead, in its mouth. It saw them, watched them, was still. Dinner, Urson said softly. Come on. They moved forward again. Then they stopped. Suddenly, the beast sprang from the doorway, 
Shadow and distance had made them completely underestimate its size. Along the sprung arc flowed a canine body nearly five feet long. Urson struck up at it and knocked it from its flight with his stick. As it fell, Yimmy and Geo were upon it with theirs, clubbing its chest and head. For six blows it staggered and could not gain its feet. Then, as it threatened to heave to standing, Urson rushed forward and brought his stave straight down on the chest. Bones snapped and tore through the brown pelt, only to have their blue sheen covered a moment later by a well of blood. It howled, kicked its hind feet at the stake with which Urson held it to the ground, and then stretched out its limbs and quivered. The front legs stretched and stretched, while the torso seemed to pull in on itself, shrinking in the death agonies. The long mouth, which had dropped its prey, gaped open as the head flopped from side to side, the pink tongue lolling, shrinking. My God, said Gia. The sharp muzzle blunted now, and the claws in the padded paw stretched, opened into human fingers, and a thumb. The hairlessness of the underbelly had spread to the entire carcass. Hind legs lengthened, joints reversed themselves, and bare knees bent as human feet dragged themselves through fragments of brown leaves over the ground, and a human thigh gave a final contraction, stilled, and then one leg fell out straight again. A shaggy, black-haired man lay still on the ground, his chest caved and bloody, and one last throw he flung his hands up to grasp the stake and pull it from his chest. But too weak, they slipped down as his lips curled back from his mouth, revealing a row of perfectly white, blunt teeth. Urson stepped back, and then back again. The stave fell, pulled loose with a sucking explosion from the ruined mess of lung. The bear man had raised his hand to his own chest and seized his triple gold token. In the name of the goddess, he finally said. Yemi walked forward now, picked up the carcass of the smaller animal that had been dropped, and turned away. Well, he said. Our guess dinner isn't going to be as big as we thought. I guess not, Geo said. They walked back to the ruined building, away from the corpse. Hey, Urson, Geo said at last to the big man, who was still holding his coins. Snap out of it. What's the matter? The only man I've ever seen, whose body was that broken in that way, he said slowly was one whose side struck into by a ship's spar. They decided to settle that evening at the corner of one of the building's ruined walls. They produced fire with a rock against a section of slightly rusted girder, and after much sawing on a jagged metal blade protruding from a pile of rubble, they managed to quarter the animal and rip most of the pelt from its red body. With thin branches to hold the meat, they did a passable job of roasting. Although partially burned, partially raw, and without seasoning, they ate it, and their hunger ceased. As they sat huddled by the wall, ripping red juicy fibers from the last bones with their teeth, night swelled through the jungle, imprisoning them 
in the shell of orange flicking from their fire. "'Shall we leave it going?' asked Urson. "'Fire keeps animals away,' Yimmy said. On leaves piled together, now, they stretched out by the wall of the broken building. There was quiet, an insect hum, no unnameable chitterings except for the comforting rush of the river's water. Geo was first to awake, his eyes filled with silver. The entire clearing had been flooded by white light from the huge disk of the moon that sat on the rim of the trees. Iemi and Urson beside him looked uncomfortably corpse-like, and he was about to reach over and touch Yemi's outstretched arm when there was a noise behind him, like beaten cloth. He jerked his head around and was staring at the gray wall by which they had camped. He looked up at the spreading plain that tore off raggedly against the night. Fatigue had washed into something unpleasant and hard in his belly that had little to do with tiredness. He stretched his arm in the leaves once more and put his cheek down on the cool flesh of his shoulder. The beating sound came again and continued for a few seconds. He rolled his face up and stared at the sky. Something crossed on the moon. It seemed to expand a moment, spread its wings, and draw them in again. He reached out, his arm over the leaves like thunder, and grabbed Yimmy's black shoulder. Yimmy grunted, started, then rolled over on his back and opened his eyes. Geo saw the black chest drop with expelled breath, the only recognition given. A few seconds later, the chest rose again. Yemi turned his face to Geo and raised his finger to his lips. Then he turned his face back up to the night. Three more times, the flapping sounded behind them, behind the wall, Geo realized. Once he glanced down again and saw that Yemi had raised his arm and put it over his eyes. They passed years that way. Then a flock suddenly leapt from the wall. Some of them fell twenty feet before their wings filled with air, and they rose again. They circled wider, and before they returned, another flock dropped off into the night. As they fell this time, Geo suddenly grabbed Yemi's arm and pulled it down from his eyes. The figures dropped through the dark like kites sixty feet above them, forty feet, thirty. Then here was a thin, piercing shriek. Yemi was up on his feet in a second, and Geo beside him, their staffs in hand. Here it comes, breathed Yemi. He kicked at Urson, but the big man was already on his knees and then feet. The wings beat insistently and darkly before them as they stood against the wall. The figures flew toward them, and at the terrifying distance of five feet, reversed. I don't think they can get in at the wall, said Yemi. I hope the hell they can't, Urson said. The figures dropped to the ground, black wings crumpling to their bodies in the moonlight. In the growing horde of shadow in front of them, light snagged on a metal blade. Then two of the creatures detached from the others and hurled themselves forward, swords arcing suddenly above their heads. They swung their staffs as hard as they could, catching both beasts on the chest. 
they fell backwards in a sudden expansion of rubbery wings as though they had stumbled into billowing dark canvas three more now leapt over the fallen ones shrieking as they came urson looked up and jammed his staff into the belly of a fourth monster who was about to fall on them from above one got past yimmy's whistling staff and geo had to stop swinging and grab a furry arm he pulled it to the side overbalancing the huge sailed creature it dropped its sword as it lay for a moment struggling on its back geo grabbed the blade and brought it straight from the ground up into the gut of another of the creatures who spread open its wings and staggered back he rested the blade free and then turned it down into the body of the fallen one it made a thick sound like a crushed sponge as the blade came out again and he hacked into a shadow on his left a voice suddenly sounded but inside his head the jewels snake bawled geo where the hell are you he was still holding his staff and now he flung it forward spear-like into the face of an advancing beast struck it opened up like a black parachute knocking away three of its companions before it fell in the view cleared for an instant geo saw a slight spidery form dart from the jungle edge into the clearing with his free hand geo ripped the jewels from his neck and flung the confused handful of thong and chain over the heads of the shrieking beasts the beads made a double eye in the light at the top of their arc before they fell on the leaves beyond. Snake picked them up and held them above his head. Fire leapt from the boy's hands in a double bolt that converged in the center of the dark bodies. A red flare silhouetted the jagged edge of a wing. The wing flamed, waved flame, and the burning beast tried to take air before it fell, splashing fire about it. Orange light caught sharp on brown faces chiseled with shadow, caught in the terrified red bead of an eye or along double fangs behind dark lips. Burning wings withered on the ground. Dead leaves had sparked now, and whips of light ran on the clearing floor. The beasts retreated, and the three men stood against the wall, panting. Watch out! Yemi suddenly called. Snake looked up as the great wings tented over him, hiding him momentarily. Red flared beneath them, and suddenly the beasts fell away, their sails sweeping over the dead leaves, moved by wind or life. Geo couldn't tell. Dark flappings rose on the moon, grew further away, and were gone. Away from the wall, they saw the fire had blown up against the wall and was dying. They ran quickly toward the edge of the forest. Snake, said Geo, when they stopped. This is Yimmy. This is Snake. We told you about him. Yimmy extended his hand. Glad to meet you. Look, said Geo, he can read your mind, so if you still think he's a spy... Yimmy grinned. Remember the general rule? If he is a spy, it's going to get much too complicated trying to figure why he saved us like that urson scratched his head if it's a choice between snake and nothing we'd better take snake hey forearms i owe you a thrashing he paused then laughed 
<laughs> I hope some day I get a chance to give it to you. Where have you been, anyway? Geo asked. He put his hand on the boy's shoulder. You're wet. Our water friends again? suggested Urson. Probably, said Geo. Snake now held one hand toward Geo. What's that? Oh, you don't want to keep them? Snake shook his head. All right, said Geo. He took one jewel and put it around his neck. Geo took the wrought chain with the platinum claw from his neck and hung it around Yemi's. The white eye shone on his dark chest in the moonlight. Now Snake beckoned them to follow him back across the clearing. They came, stopping to pick up swords from the shriveled darknesses on the ground about the clearing. As they passed around the edge of the broken building, Geo looked for the corpse they had left there, but it was gone. "'Where are we going?' asked Urson. Snake only motioned them onward. They neared the broken cylinder, and Snake scrambled up the rubble under the dark hole through which the man-wolf had leapt earlier that evening. At the door, Snake turned and lifted the jewel from Geo's neck and held it aloft. The jewel glowed now. With a blue-green light that seeped into the corners and crevices of the ruined entrance. Shreds of cloth hung at the windows, most of which were broken. Twigs and rubbish littered the metal floor. They walked between double seats toward a door at the far end. Effaced signs still hung on the walls. N blank S M blank K blank G the door at the end was ajar, and Snake opened it all the way. Something scuttered through a cracked window. The jewel's light showed two seats broken from their fixtures. Vines covered the front window, in which only a few splinters of glass hung on the rim. Draped in rotten fabric, a few metal rings about wrists and ankles, two skeletons with silver helmets had fallen from the seats. Snake pointed to a row of smashed glass discs in front of the broken seats. Radio, they heard in their minds. Now he reached down into the mess on the floor and dislodged a chunk of rusted metal. Gun, he said, showing it to Geo. The three men examined it. What's it good for? asked Urson. Snake shrugged. Are there any electricities or diodes around? asked Geo, remembering the words from before. Snake shrugged again. Why did you want to show us all this? Geo asked. The boy only turned and started back toward the door. When they were standing in the oval entrance, about to climb down, Yemi pointed to the ruins of the building ahead of them. Did you know what that building was called? Barracks. Snake said. I know that word, said Geo. So do I, said Yemi. It means a place where they used to keep soldiers altogether. It's from one of the old languages. Where to now? Urson asked Snake. The boy climbed back down into the clearing, and they followed him into the denser wood where only pearls of light scattered through the trees. They emerged at a broad ribbon of silver, the river broken by rocks. We were right the first time, Geo said. We should have stayed here. The sound of rippling, sloshing, 
the full whisper of leaves and foliage along the edges of the forest. These accompanied them as they lay down on the dried moss behind the larger rocks. And with the heaviness of release on them, they dropped, like stones down a well, the bright pool of sleep. The bright pool of silver grew and spread and wrinkled into the familiar shapes of mast, the rail of the deck, and the whiteness of the sea beyond the ship. The sea moved down the deck until another gaunt figure approached from the other direction. The features, though strangely distorted by whiteness and pulled to grotesquerie, were recognizable as those of the captain as he drew near. Oh, mate, said the captain. Silence, while the mate gave an answer they couldn't hear. Yes, answered the captain. I wonder what she wants, too. His voice was hollow, etiolated like a flower grown in darkness. The captain turned and knocked on Argo's cabin door. It opened, and they stepped in. The hand that opened the door for them was thin as winter twigs. The walls of the room seemed draped in spiderwebs and hangings, insubstantial as layered dust. The great desk seemed spindly, grotesque, and the papers on top of it were tissue-thin, threatening to scutter and crumble with a breath. The chandelier above gave more languishing white smoke than light, and the arms, branches, and complexed array of oil cups looked like a convocation of spiders. Argo spoke in a pale white voice that sounded like the whisper of thin fingers tearing webs. So, she said, we will stay at least another seven days. But why, asked the captain, I have received a sign from the sea. I do not wish to question your authority, priestess, began the captain. Then do not, interrupted Argo. My mate has raised the objection that— Your mate has raised his hand to me once, stated the priestess. It is only in my benevolence. Here she paused, and her voice became more unsure. That I do not destroy him, where he stands. Beneath her veil, a face could be made out that might have belonged to a dried skull. But, began the captain, we wait here by the island of Aptor another seven days, commanded Argo. She looked away from the captain now, in a direction that must have been straight into the eyes of the mate. From behind the veil, hate welled like living liquid from the seemingly empty sockets. They turned to go, and once more on deck they stopped to watch the sea. Near the indistinct horizon a sharp tongue of land outlined itself with mountains. The cliffs were chalky on one side, then streaked with red and blue clays on the other. There was a reddish glow beyond one mountain, like the shimmering of a volcano, and dark as most of it was, it was a distinct darkness, backed with purple or broken by the warm, differing grays of individual rocks. Even through the night, at this distance, beyond the silver crescent of the beach, the jungle looked rich, green, even in the darkness, redolently full and quiveringly heavy with life. And then the thin screams. End of chapter 5